Welcome to Bow Talks, a podcast by Banking on Women, which is a student society at the University of Melbourne. We are dedicated to empowering, educating and encouraging our members in the financial and professional services industries. Bow would like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulon Nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land, on which we will be recording this podcast on. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to another episode of Botox. Today we are joined by Professor Carol Comerton Ford, a finance professor at the University of Melbourne. So welcome, Carol. We're very excited to have you on. Thanks very much, Imogen. I'm happy to be here. So we always like to start off by asking who you are and what your passions are. Sure. So I'm, as you said, a finance professor at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm somewhat of a workaholic, so Research is one of my passions. Um, I've been working on market structure research for more than 20 years, and it's a field that's constantly changing, so uh, keeps things interesting all of the time. And I also like it because it's so practical. Um, um, it gives you insights not just into the academic literature but also into the real world, and I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to interact with not just academics from all over the world but exchanges, regulators, brokers, asset managers, and that that keeps me really interested in what I do. Um, Outside of work, um, I'm passionate about travelling. I like going to new places, learning about new cultures. Um, Obviously, that's been somewhat lacking over the last uh, couple of years, but looking forward to that returning sometime soon. Um, Also, I love food and wine, and my husband and I like to to entertain and to cook, so that keeps uh, keeps things fun as well. Yeah, awesome. I'm sure you're itching to get back overseas. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'd love if you could tell us a bit about your time at university and an overview of, I guess, your career so far. Sure. So um, at university, I did a Bachelor of Commerce um, at the University of Sydney, and I majored in accounting and finance and did honours in finance. Um, while I was at university, I did an internship at Ernst & Young, Um, And that was a great experience, but probably the biggest thing I learned from that was that I didn't want to be an accountant. So (laughs) it gave me some direction on what I wanted to to do next. Um, When I finished honours, I'd been offered a job at an investment bank, um, but I decided instead to pursue a PhD. I had absolutely no intention of being an academic. Um, It was more about thinking that I've got 40 years of working life ahead of me, um, why not do something a bit different for a little while longer before committing to that, uh, that work, work plan for that, that horizon. Mm. Um, and so I spent some more time at university doing research. I really loved um, the PhD process. So by the end of, end of the PhD, I had worked out that I didn't want to pursue investment banking um, as a career. Um, I took a job in, uh, as a research consultant Um, but I pretty quickly got frustrated with the types of research that I was doing. The projects weren't as interesting as I would like them to be and there was probably a lack of rigour in the the way that they were being approached. Mm -hmm. So it was at that point I thought, well, academia seems like a good option. I can pursue research that I want to pursue um, in a way that I want to pursue it. So that was, I guess, the start of my academic career. Um, And with the benefit of hindsight, I'm really glad I took that that route. Um, Academia is a really great um, career path. It gives you so much freedom to pursue things that you're interested in and passionate about and to set your own agenda. Mm. Um, You also get to choose who you work with, which is pretty important and pretty rare in in the workplace. Um, So I work with a bunch of different people, co-authors in different places around the world. Um, It's an extremely collaborative profession, which I really like. I've also had lots of opportunities to consult with um, ASIC, uh, with other regulators around the world, exchanges, um, and my work has helped influence policy. So um, that's that's pretty rewarding. And on top of that, combining the travel passion, um, I've had opportunities to spend sabbaticals at the New York Stock Exchange, at New York University, London School of Economics, Norges Bank Investment Management. So that's been a great way to see other parts of the world, do interesting work and, and meet interesting people. So that's my career to date. I guess the other sort of chapter in the academic sphere is teaching. Um, and that's also a really rewarding um, experience. Um, at University of Melbourne, I um, 
co-founded the Street Finance Program. So that's a, a program where our third year students go out and teach financial literacy to high school students. Yeah. Um, and I think um, being involved in that program was terrific. And I think for our students, the third year students, it was a great experience as well. It really opened their eyes to personal finance type issues um, typically in, in finance subjects, you focus more on corporate finance and institutional mm. decision-making. Um, I think a, a program like that gives students a really good opportunity to reflect on their own their own um, experiences. So all of that has been lots of fun. Yeah, that's super interesting, particularly considering, like, I guess you took a direction you probably were never anticipating coming from doing accounting and a Bachelor of Commerce. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, it definitely sounds like academia's an area where you never stop learning, um, but also combining that like practical side in the finance world. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So what is your area of research? So my work is in market structure. So that's the study of how regulation and technology influence the way people participate in the financial markets and how um, your know, regulation and technology influences trading costs, trading performance. Um, a lot of that focuses on institutional investors, um, but I also dabble a little in, in the retail world as well. So over the 20 years that I've been studying markets, um, as I said, they've changed a lot. Um, so thinking back early in my career, the big shift initially was markets moving from floor trading environments to automated environments. Um, then we saw stock exchanges demutualise and move from being, you know, uh, uh, not-for-profit entities serving their members to being for-profit companies um, focused on growing their revenue uh, like, like other for-profit businesses. And that led to a whole lot of regulatory changes in markets where um, while exchanges were mutuals, it was okay for them to be monopolies, but once they're for-profit companies, that's obviously not going to work anymore. So regulators yeah. introduced competition in markets. Um, and I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work with ASIC to develop the regulatory framework around competition in equities trading in Australia. Um, so that's the, the practical side. Um, mm. And as competition has come into the markets, um, it's also changed the way trading happens. So there's mm. a lot more emphasis on trading speed and we've seen the rise of high-frequency traders or HFTs um, that gets talked about in the press these days. There's also been a lot of change in the way trading takes place. So growth in dark trading. So dark trading is trading that takes place without any pre-trade transparency. So if mm -hmm. you think about looking at a trading screen, you normally see orders in the market, who wants to buy, who wants to sell. In a dark market, you don't see any of that. You just see the trades that have taken place after the fact. Um, so all of those changes the markets have evolved have changed the way people participate in the market, changed liquidity, changed costs of trading. Um, they're all the things that I that I study, which has been a fascinating, fascinating journey. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. And I imagine just by the nature of the area, there's always more to learn. You're never running out of topics to research, I imagine. That's exactly right, yeah. It's been great hearing a bit about you. Um, I'd love to, I guess, have a discussion on some of the trends we've been seeing unfolding in the markets. Um, so firstly, there's been a significant rise in retail investing. So what would you say is driving this trend? So I think there's a number of factors. Probably the two most important are reductions in brokerage commissions and also covid and then a third factor would also be gamification of trading. But I'll deal with the first two first. So brokerage commissions have been trending down for quite some time. So um, back in the days of the dot-com boom, which was in the, the late 90s, um, brokerage commissions started to come down, online trading became a thing, um, and that attracted lots of retail investors into the market. Um, since that time, commissions have continued to trend down, um, and that trend accelerated, particularly in the US, when Robin Hood, which I'm sure many of the listeners um, listening are familiar with, uh, a retail trading platform in the US, um, they reduced their commissions to zero in 2019. Um, and then many of the other big traditional retail brokerage firms in the US followed suit, so Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade. So all of a sudden, um, you're able to trade stocks in the US at zero cost. Um, been a similar trend in Australia, not to the same extent. So we don't have zero commission trading 
except for some firms do offer that for ETF trading, but stock trading, um, you're always paying a fee, but it can be as little as $3 a trade. So um, that big reduction in the cost of trading um, has opened up opportunities for lots more people to invest in the market. So rather than needing you know, five or $10,000 to invest, because the cost is so low, people are willing to invest with um, much smaller amounts of money and have brought lots of new people into the market. Then, then layer on top of that COVID and the lockdowns, um, one of my favourite journalists um, from Bloomberg, Matt Levine, coined the term the boredom market hypothesis. So basically <laughs> the boredom market hypothesis is that um, ordinary people are going to do more trading if, one, trading is entertaining, and, two, if other things are less entertaining. So yeah. in lockdown, of course, there's no sports, there's no sports betting, there's no going to the movies, there's no going out for restaurants. So what are people doing looking for entertainment? What, what do they do? Well, surprisingly, lots of people turn to the stock market um, yeah. as a form of entertainment. And during that time, lots of people had more disposable income. So if you're not going out and doing all those things, you've got more cash. What are you going to do with that? Maybe you look to participate in the stock market as a either a way of earning money or having having fun. So, to give you a sense of that growth, um, back in April of 2020, ASIC reported that around that sort of early lockdown period, there was a 100% increase in the level of retail trading in the market, and a 340% increase in the number of retail trading accounts. Um, that growth has continued over the last couple of years, probably not at quite the same levels, but we've got way more people participating in the market. And then coming back to the third issue of gamification, um, there's also been a trend, particularly for trading firms that are offering trading services via the phone, so people trading on their mobile phone, to do that using apps that gamify the experience. So they try to make it fun and cool, um, and they do things like, um, you know, if a price goes up, you'll get confetti on your screen or if you, yeah. you get badges, um, incentive badges for spending amounts of time on the platform or encouraging messages using the sort of language that you see on Wall Street bets, like to the mm -hmm. moon or diamond <laughs> hands and so on. Um, so all of those um, sort of gamified aspects of the trading apps are all about trying to encourage people to trade more. Um, so sort of providing you with a nudge to encourage you to trade more. Um, and there's lots of um, academic work that tells us that trading more is not necessarily a good thing, right? Um, people yeah. who overtrade tend to perform worse than people that trade less. Um, overconfidence, people tend to trade um, too much and they perform worse. And interestingly, um, men are more likely to overtrade and be overconfident women. Um, and then finally, there's some recent academic work that tells us that that gamification actually encourages more risk-taking behaviour. So you're more likely to take on risky positions. And that's particularly the case if you're an inexperienced trader or if you've got low levels of financial literacy. So mm -hmm. all of these things, I think, are sort of encouraging the wrong types of behaviours um, uh, from retail traders. Yeah, that's great. That's a great summary. It'll, I guess it'll be interesting to see if the growth in retail trading sort of slows a bit as people are freed and able to, you know, start going to sports games and start, like, having fun with their friends. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and earlier you mentioned um, that we're sort of seeing new brokers pop up uh, that are advertising either free or very cheap brokerage fees. So how can a broker offer this? Okay, so um, the answer is a little bit different in the US versus Australia. So let me walk through both. So um, in the US, which is where, as I said, now many of the brokers are offering free trading services, um, is because of the nature of the market structure in the US. So the US market is extremely complicated. Um, there's 16 stock exchanges, there's 50 dark pools, 200 wholesale market makers. So a lot of complexity in where you can source liquidity. Um, the regulations require that brokers trade at the best price. Um, so that seems obvious, but 
there's reasons why that's not necessarily always desirable. Yeah. Um, most retail brokers don't send their orders to stock exchanges. Instead, they'll send their orders to wholesale market makers. Um, so a wholesale market maker is basically a firm that's trading on its own account. Um, yeah. These firms are often high-frequency traders, so you'll hear names like Citadel and Virtue. They're very large players in, in the U.S. financial markets. Um, essentially, they're taking on that uh, trading as the counterparty, so you're not transacting with another investor in the marketplace, you're transacting with um, the wholesale market maker. Mm-hmm. And those wholesale market makers typically pay retail brokers for the order flow, right? So they're going to make a payment to the broker in order for that broker to send the retail customers to the market. And in return, the regulatory obligation is that those wholesale market makers have to trade at the best price or better. And the convention in the US has been that the wholesale market makers will provide very small price improvement. So they might, for example, offer one one hundredth of a cent price improvement relative to the price available on the exchange. Yeah. So, so very small. So you're probably wondering then, so why would the wholesale market makers be willing to pay the retail broker for the order flow? Why don't they just trade on the exchange like everyone else? Like what's, yeah. what, what's, what makes that order flow attractive? Basically, the reason is that um, unlike institutional order flow, retail order flow doesn't typically move prices. Retail investors are generally considered to be uninformed. Their order flow is uncorrelated, so you'll observe buy orders and sell orders coming into the market, whereas when an institution is investing, you'll see order flow coming all in one direction. So what that means is for a wholesale market maker who's trying to make money by earning the spread, so they make money by the difference between the price at which they buy and the price at which they sell, they would like to be able to transact with uncorrelated order flow and earn the spread without the price moving. So for those wholesale market makers, that's a very attractive business. Um, But the practice is really controversial for a number of reasons. One is there's a view that if you keep all that retail uninformed order flow away from the exchanges, that means the liquidity on the exchanges will be lower and the exchanges are the, the places where prices are getting set. So maybe the prices are not the best prices that they might be if all of that order flow was going to the exchange. The other reason why it's controversial is that it potentially creates a conflict of interest between the retail broker and their customers. Um, and Robin Hood actually paid a $65 million settlement to the SEC Um, in 2020 to settle allegations that they had made material misrepresentations to their customers about their revenues. Basically, the information in the settlement tells us that Robin Hood had negotiated a split in terms of how much of the um, benefit the customer gets compared to how much they get, and their split was much bigger than most other um, retail brokers, and they were doing that in return for their customers receiving less price improvement. So quite explicitly, they were getting paid more in order for their customers to get paid less. Um, Robinhood did not admit or deny any wrongdoing in the settlement, but um, I think it's clear that that, that there is a potential conflict and and that's one of the reasons why there's so much concern around payment for order flow in the US. So I think that, that this is a really good example of if you're not paying for a product, um, mm-hmm. you're not the customer, you are the product, uh, and you yeah. should be concerned about that. Um, so that's the US context. So thinking about, and, and I think that's important for um, many millennials in particular are trading US stocks and doing so on super cheap platforms, and I think it's important that they understand why they're getting that service for free. Um, in Australia, um, payment for order flow is not legal, so... Um, That's why we don't see zero uh, brokerage commissions in Australia. Um, But what is driving the reductions in brokerage commission in Australia? So many of the new investment platforms or trading platforms um, are not actually members of the ASX. So they're not paying the fees to be connected to the ASX and and trading directly on the exchange. They Mm -hmm. are um, using brokers to do that, to provide that service to them. And then one of the ways in which they reduce their costs is to use what's referred to as a single HIN model. 
So if you buy stock on, on the exchange, typically you'll have a holder identification number assigned to you, so basically indicating that you're the owner of that stock. Um, a broker that's using a single HIN model, basically it puts all their customers under the same HIN, so you're not the legal owner of the stock. Uh, the broker is the legal owner of the stock. Um, so what does that mean in terms of the sort of service and uh, product that you're getting? Um, that potentially means you're not getting all the benefits of being a shareholder. So you might not receive information from the company. You might not be able to go to meetings. You might not be able to vote. Um, you potentially miss out on participating in dividend repurchase programs, share purchase plans. Um, and you might also find you're not covered by the National Guarantee Fund, which is basically a compensation fund that provides protection to um, people that are trading with um, participants of the ASX and the other exchange in Australia, CHIAX. So if there's a failure of a brokerage firm, you may not be covered. Um, so I, I think you know, it's a good example of there's no free lunch. Uh -huh. um, if you're getting something that's cheap, it's probably because the product that you're getting is, is not the same. So I think that's something for um, retail investors in Australia to be mindful of. Yeah, for sure. I guess, yeah, it's a good lesson that if you're not paying maybe high brokerage fees, you're paying in some other way for sure. Absolutely. And also, at least I know personally, like I've seen so many ads pop up, like suggested ads for like really cheap um, brokerage fees and cheap brokers. So it's definitely good, I think, for people to hear. So with this big increase in retail investor trading, um, do you think that it is a good thing? So, I mean, I think it's really great that people are getting focused on their financial futures and in particular millennials, right? I think a, a lot of this growth in retail investing is coming from people from your generation and, and the other students in our classes. Um, that, that's really great that people are taking an interest. But I think, um, as I mentioned before, one of the risks of the way this retail trading services have evolved is that it really encourages you to trade too much, um, so as I said, there's a bunch of academic research that tells us that that leads to worse trading outcomes. Um, I think one of the other big risks is over the last couple of years, um, with the exception of a couple of big declines, which prompted people to come into the market in the first place, um, some people may feel like the market always goes up. And that's, that's yeah. certainly not true. So I think if and or when, more likely when there is a correction, um, some of these people that have come into the market in expectation of the market always rising will leave the market. And we saw that after the dot com, dot bot, sorry, dot com burst um, in the early 2000s. Um, a lot of those retail investors who came into the market then um, left the market never to return, right? And then they've missed out on 20 years of uh, great growth in the markets um, because they were burnt from, from um, their activity early on. So I think um, I would definitely encourage particularly our students and millennials to be focused and look for to trade in the market, but maybe think about taking a long-term view, buying a diversified portfolio, and it's now much easier and cheaper, cheaper to do that, right? You can buy an ETF, um, an exchange-traded fund, or buy a managed fund, um, and, and so you're getting exposure to growth opportunities without taking as much risk. So I'm, I'm not offering financial advice here, of course. Because, <laughs> of course not. Um, you, know, you need to be uh, licensed to provide financial advice. But you know, <laughs> some of the simple facts we teach students in classes are about the values of diversification. Um, and I think, yeah. I think um, students should think to apply that to their own, their own um, practices as well. Yeah, um, just sure. on the on the financial advice um, issue as well. Like that's an issue that's received a lot of attention this week in the press, um, mm -hmm. with ASIC putting out some guidance on finfluencers. So I'm not sure if that's a term you're familiar with. Basically, uh, financial markets influencers on social mm -hmm. media. So as more and more people have come interested in retail trading, so too have people interested in providing advice uh, via social media. Um, mm. and it's great. I think that young people want to share what they've learned about markets with others, but they need to be careful that they're not veering into providing financial advice. And certainly um, some of those influencers are getting paid for making posts and then yeah. you're sort of running into issues of, well, 
if they're getting paid, then they're conducting a business of providing financial advice and, and you shouldn't be doing that without having a financial services licence. Yeah, absolutely. They have a fiduciary duty, I suppose. Yeah, I think those are some very important uh, things for students to note when they're thinking about investing. And what should retail investors think about when they're selecting a broker? So as I've alluded to before, I think it's important to understand the product you're getting offered. Um, And if it's cheap, what is it a worse product? And I think in Australia in particular, there's two dimensions to think about. Um, what data are you being provided access with to, with, and where is your trading getting done? Um, so there's two stock exchanges in Australia. Everyone knows the ASX, the Australian Securities Exchange. Um, the other is CBOE Australia, um, which is so CBOE is a large global firm. Um, they recently bought Chiex, which was the second exchange in Australia. So now they're CBOE Australia. Um, not all of the ASX participants are connected to CBOE. So that means if you're trading through a broker that's not connected to CBOE and CBOE is offering a better price than ASX, you're not going to get exposure to that price. You won't be able to trade at that that better price. And an issue related to that is when you look at your app and see the prices of the stock, um, are you seeing data from ASX or Chiax or both? Um, Market data is a really big revenue source for exchanges, so it's expensive for brokers to buy and provide to their customers. So some of these cheap um, brokers providing, sorry, trading firms providing cheap brokerage services are not providing you with live market data. So data is free after 20 minutes. So if you're observing a price that's 20 minutes old, that's probably fine if you're a long-term investor wanting to take a Mm -hmm. position in a stock for many years. But I think it's important for you to understand what information you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And then one last thing I would think about is um, what types of orders are your broker providing you with access to? So, again, some of the cheaper services only allow you to place market orders. So a market order is when you submit an order um, to trade at the market price. So if you're buying a stock, you'll buy at the best ask price in the market. So if you submit a market order and you're looking at a screen with old market data or in very volatile conditions where the price is moving very quickly, the price you think you might trade at may not be the price you trade at. So Mm -hmm. you should look to make use of limit orders. So limit orders are where you specify the price at which you're prepared to trade. Um, That's going to give you more certainty about the price you'll pay. Um, They're the things to be looking at as you trade off, should I be paying three dollars or nine dollars um you know how how is the service different um across those two different uh, providers yeah sure definitely something to consider so it wouldn't be a podcast without asking the question what are your views on cryptocurrency so i think the first thing that i would say is that we should stop talking about cryptocurrencies and start talking about crypto assets so um a bona fide currency Um, should function as a medium of exchange or a store of value or a unit of account. And if we think about Bitcoin, which is the most established crypto asset, um, it doesn't really do well on any of those criteria. So um, there's very few places you can pay for something with Bitcoin. Um, The price of Bitcoin is hugely volatile, so it's not an effective store of value. Uh, It's also not useful as a risk management tool. Um, And you know, subject to risks of hacking and theft and all sorts of other stuff. So unlike a bank account where you have some sort of guarantee or deposit insurance, um, you're not getting any of those things from from a crypto asset. So we should think about crypto as a speculative asset, not a currency. Um, So there's also been lots of talk about Bitcoin being a good inflation hedge or digital gold And I think if we look at what's happened over the last few months, it hasn't really done very well on those dimensions either. So as inflation has gone up relatively quickly, um, markets have been very volatile, Bitcoin has been declining. So um, (laughs) it's not really delivering on on its promises. Mm. But having said all of that, um, there's been a lot of inflows into cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin and Ethereum, Um, particularly from institutions. So institutional money is going into 
um, into these products. So I think it's going to survive as a speculative asset, regardless of all those those criticisms that I've made. <laughs> <laughs> so just one one final point I'd say is there's you know we've also seen debate and uh, uh, movement on the regulatory front around crypto ETFs. So we will this year I think see crypto ETFs mm. listed on the ASX and CBOE. Um, and I think given that there's a huge amount of interest in crypto from retail investors, that's probably a good thing. So um, there's been lots of scams and hacks of people trying to invest in, in crypto. Um, mm. At least if you're able to invest in a crypto ETF product, you're removing that risk. You're removing the risk mm. of um, hacking and theft. Doesn't change the fact that this is an enormously volatile and risky asset, but at least you'll be able to invest without um, fear of, of having your money stolen. Yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like an asset class that kind of a lot of investors don't really know much about. <laughs> um, and also I think it's interesting, like kind of looking at the actual differences between the cryptocurrencies. Like I know some like Ethereum actually have like a genuine practical use um, and are quite widely used. So like ones like that are quite, uh, quite a bit more stable. Um, whereas you can't really say the same for ones like Bitcoin, I think. No, so I think I think I think you're right. Um, Ethereum definitely has some value in terms of um, use in smart contracts and so forth. Um, one interesting thing is that, as I said, there will be crypto ETFs in Australia shortly, um, but that will only be on Bitcoin and Ethereum. So all the other crazy coins like Dogecoin and Shiba Coin and who else, no matter, I don't even know the names of all the alternative coins, so they won't, they won't be available um, as okay. ETF products. So I think, I think there, there is a clear distinction between the different types of crypto assets that uh, people should be mindful of. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting to hear about the ETFs, definitely something to keep an eye on. As well as this earlier, you touched on ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen a huge increase in passive investment in Australia. So why do you think we're seeing this shift and what are its implications? Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely right. There's been a huge shift to passive investing. So um, investment products where the product is just tracking an index rather than making active stock picking decisions. And this is a trend in Australia, but also globally. So a decade ago, there was about $3 trillion in global index funds and ETFs. And by the end of 2020, that had increased to $15 trillion. So huge growth. Um, So I think there's three factors that are driving that growth, or at least three factors. Um, One is that there's more and more evidence that active managers, so managers that are stock picking, Um, can't Mm. persistently outperform after you take into account fees. So active managers tend to charge higher management fees. Um, So, for example, an active manager might be charging 2%, whereas uh, ETF might be 15 basis points. So that means that that in order to perform better, that manager has to be performing more than 2% better before they even get started. Yeah. So that's pretty tough. So... um, so I think I think that's one reason why we've seen growth in, in in passive funds. Also, passive fees have been coming down faster than active fees, so that mm-hmm. makes them more attractive as well. And then finally, I think there's been a lot of innovation in the types of ETFs that are available. So, ten years ago, you know, you'd be buying a broad-based ETF product covering the market index. Um, now you can get exposure to particular sectors or particular asset classes. You can get leveraged ETFs. So there's a lot more flexibility in the types of products that you can access yeah. um, uh, around ETFs, which I think makes them a lot more attractive. And then the second part of your question was what are the implications of that, that trend? Um, and, I mean, I think, I think the growth in passive is generally a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. People getting diversified portfolios for lower cost is a positive but there have been a number of concerns that have been raised either by um, regulators or um, other, t- other asset managers. Um, one of those issues is that um, because passive funds are tracking an index, um, they don't c- care too much about fundamentals. They're not doing fundamental research. Um, they're not contributing to price discovery. And so potentially that leads to less efficient prices. 
Um, and related to that, um, passive funds are typically benchmarked to the closing price. So they will try to trade at the closing price. So we've also seen this really big shift in activity to closing options. So in Australia, about 20 or 25% of trading activity each day takes place in the closing auction. So people, again, say, well, does that mean the closing prices are no longer efficient if it's predominantly index funds trading in those uh, at that time? And they are not doing fundamental research and are somewhat price insensitive. Is the price inefficient? Um, I've actually been doing some research on that topic in the European markets. So we've looked at the rise of passive, uh, not so much the rise of passive, but the rise in closing option activity. Um, that's also grown a lot in Europe. Um, and we don't find any evidence that that's leading to distortions in the closing price or any distortions in the pricing efficiency during the trading day. So I think that concern is is less apparent than, than what some people might think. And I think okay. if, if it was really the case that passive funds were leading to inefficient prices, that would mean that there's lots more opportunities for active funds to, yeah. to make money. Um, and so it would sort of be naturally um, correcting that you'd get more active funds into the market to exploit that, that inefficiency. But um, I, I don't think the level of passive investing we are observing in the markets is enough to make prices inefficient. Um, mm. Very interesting. I, would, I must say that like ETFs are such an attractive asset just in the sense that you can really just buy them and kind of forget about them like I I definitely think it kind of makes sense as we're seeing the rising retail investment um that we're also seeing that rise in passive investment as well yeah I think that's 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 an interesting trend yeah as well as that in the markets currently um they're awash with capital um everyone seems to have a lot of cash to spend so what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this rise in private capital in the markets so um, I think globally there's been a decline in companies going public. Right? So if we look at um, markets around the world, in the US in particular, um, the peak for the number of listed companies in the US was in 1997 when there were about 7,500 companies listed. Um, by 2018 that had fallen by 50% to about 3,600 companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We've got less companies public, so less opportunities for people to invest in public markets. Um, Over the same period, um, there was a huge amount of stock repurchases, again, using stats from the the US, and stock repurchases actually exceeded new issuances by about $3.6 trillion. So, again, less companies returning money to investors in the public markets. Mm. Um, So we've got fewer companies going public, public companies repurchasing stock. There's a really big academic literature exploring this trend um, and that deserves a podcast all on its own, so I can't (laughs) can't do it justice. But just a couple of factors that drive that are, you know, there's major regulatory change uh, in the US that was the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that made it much more costly to be public, so Mm. financial reporting obligations, accountability, governance and so on. Um, So it's less attractive to be public. Um, while all of this is happening, the pool of private money is also growing very, very quickly, right? So over the same period, we've seen huge growth in the uh, private equity markets, also yeah. the development of private markets, so companies that can trade without being public. Um, and so companies are able to get the capital they need without being public, um, mm. So that trend, at least again in the US, has reversed a little bit over the last year or so. So the US had a record number of new listings last year. Um, mm. Some of that was due to SPACs, so special purpose acquisition companies. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, so that, that trend I think has temporarily reversed, but I think the, the abundance of private um, equity capital means that that's going to continue to be the case, right, that there's mm. more and more funds in the private capital markets and public companies will not need to go public um, to the extent they have in the past. Would you say that the like recent low interest rates have also contributed to that just because it's so easy to get cheap money? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely been a contributor to the the sort of abundance of money available for investments. Mm, Yeah, it'll be be interesting to see if as the interest rates rise, 
Uh, we see sort of say less private capital in the market. Potentially, I think there's still plenty plenty of money out there. So yeah, true. <laughs> Um, and what would you say are some of the consequences of companies staying private instead of choosing to be listed? Yeah, so I think I think it has important implications outside just the financial markets. Obviously, there's implications in terms of governance and uh, how companies operate and growth opportunities and pro- productivity and so forth. But I think if we think about it from an individual perspective, um, typically, private markets are only accessible to people who are accredited investors or sophisticated investors. And to meet the definitions of, of, of those criteria, you need to either have certain levels of income or meet certain assets tests. So basically, that means this private investment opportunity is only really available to wealthy individuals. Um, yeah. So if you think about the stock market as being an effective way to give people opportunities to grow their wealth and Mm. um, get exposure to productivity and growth in the economy. Um, Companies staying private for longer means that your average Joe um, is not able to get exposure to those opportunities. Uh, They're they're missing out on opportunities to grow their wealth. So um, much of the capital gain, um, if we think of some of the really big companies that have gone public in in recent years, much of the gains in those companies came before they went public and after the companies have gone public, their performance has not been so great, right? So regular people are missing out on those growth opportunities because by the time they get the chance to invest in the businesses, they're much more mature um, and and smaller opportunities for capital growth. So potentially this trend um, exacerbates the income inequality issues that we're seeing more and more of in Mm. in, uh, countries around the world. Um, So I think there's a couple of ways you could try to address that problem. Um, One would be reducing the burdens of being a public company um, or potentially trying to level the playing field so that really large private companies um, have similar levels of of, um, obligations. Um, A second way would be to think about how how do you find ways to get more more investors access to private market opportunities? Yeah. Uh, And maybe that means that, uh, people, more people need access to financial advice um, because we want we want people to make sure that they understand the risk that they're taking in investing in private companies. Um, but you also want people to have those opportunities in order to to grow their own capital. Yeah, it's very, um, I guess, surprising to hear the flow and effects of like these changes in the financial markets to a much broader issue, like a much broader societal issue. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of huge amounts of capital, Australia has a huge superannuation system with huge amounts of capital. Are they shifting how they invest? Sure. So you're absolutely right. The Australian um, superannuation system is enormous. We've got the fourth largest pool of pension assets in the world, despite being a relatively small country. Um, So there's about $3.5 trillion in assets under management in Australian superannuation funds. Mm. Um, Around $950 of that is in MySuper products. So MySuper is an initiative of the government to create a cheap, cost-effective, balanced product that can be the um, sort of the default product that people invest in. So if if you're not prepared to invest the time to think about what super product you want to be in, you'll go into the default my super product. So, um, you know, big chunk of money um, in those types of products. Um, about 880 million um, of um, super funds are in self-managed super funds, so where people manage their own super portfolios. Um, one of the interesting things about that is that if you look at the asset allocation of um, self-managed funds compared to the APRA regulated funds, they're quite different. Um, so in an APRA regulated fund, uh, people are typically about 55% allocated to equities and 18% to fixed income and then some money in property and infrastructure and cash. Um, in a self-managed super fund, uh, people tend to have less money in in uh, shares, listed or unlisted shares, um, more money in real estate. And interestingly, um, self-managed funds also have a massive home bias. So only about 2% of self-managed fund assets are invested overseas. So if you're managing your own money, you're more likely to have 
almost all of your exposure on Australian assets. Um, so much less diversification. So thinking of turning to your question about, well, is there a shift in the way money is being invested? Um, so it depends on what pool of funds you're talking about in terms of self-managed versus APRA-regulated. But if we think about um, the APRA-regulated funds, one of the interesting trends, I think, relates to your prior question around private equity. So mm. on average, super funds only have about 3.5% of money in private equity. Um, so that's a relatively low exposure. Uh, and that's in part, I think, due to the fact that private equity funds tend to charge pretty high fees. So the standard fee model for private equity fund is 2 and 20, meaning that they charge a 2% management fee and a 20% performance fee. So they're, they're substantial fees. And so as a result, super funds have, have probably shied away from, from some of those investments because they don't like to pay big fees. Um, so but as you pointed out, in this super low interest environment, how do you get sufficient yield for your investors? Uh, and one of the ways that super funds have been looking to do that is by increasing their exposure to private equity and to private credit. So just as yeah. one example, um, Australian Super, which is one of the largest super funds um, in the country, um, has an allocation to private equity of about 4%. They've flagged publicly that they're looking to increase that to somewhere between 6 and 8% over the next five years. Um, mm. So trying to get more exposure to um, th those types of assets. I think one of the things about private equity that is both a plus and a negative is that it's quite hard to manage, or sorry, to measure private equity fund performance. So, you mm. know, they take a long-term view. Let's say got a 10-year investment horizon. The portfolio is relatively illiquid. It's not like investing in a listed company where you observe the price of the stock every day. Um, so the upside of that is it means you don't observe the volatility that you see in the public market. The downside is that you actually, it's hard to, to know how that investment is performing until the private equity firm exits from that position. Um, mm. So, uh, so it will be interesting to see what that growth in private equity investment means for super fund performance in the longer term. Yeah, I know that also like the regulatory bodies of the super funds are sort of suggesting mergers of some of the funds to create like mega funds. So I can imagine that that would probably add to the trend towards like different investments even further just because they have so much capital to allocate as one fund. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that some of the changes have been pretty contentious and the sort of new APRA requirements around performance reporting, um, while they're, it, it's good to have more detailed performance reporting and accountability, I think also potentially has some unintended consequences. And uh, one of those, I think, will be consolidation of, of funds, um, having more and more mega funds. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for sure. Now, shifting away from our discussion of the markets, I'd love to ask, if you could go back and give your university self one piece of advice, what would it be? So um, I think I'm pretty happy with how things have turned out um, on the professional front. So I don't have a huge amount of advice for myself professionally, but um, I think my advice would be to, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek, so I probably focused a little bit too much at university on studying and not enough on, on having fun. Um, so there's, there's a lot of extracurricular things you can do at, at uni, um, in particular things like the clubs and societies, and you're, you're clearly involved in one of those. Um, and I think that's a really great way to, to have different experiences and get involved in campus life. Um, the one piece of advice I would have for myself and then translate that onto uh, all the students listening is to, I should have gone on an exchange. Right? So when I, when I was an undergrad, it was much less common for students to go on exchange, but people did go. Um, I think that's just such a fantastic opportunity that I'm, I'm sorry I missed out on. I had some mm. friends that went and studied at, at top US schools and had great experiences living on campus and being involved in, in um, campus life in that way. Um, and I think in particular, if you think about it, if you're going to a US school, US students are paying you know, upwards of $50,000 a year to go to some of those schools and Australian yeah. students get to go for the price of hex. So yeah. not only is it a great life experience, it's a great deal. So, yeah. so <laughs> very true. Um, uh, you know, something that I would definitely um, 
encourage mm. students to do. Mm. And I feel like exchange is quite a unique experience in that, like, you know, it's quite structured. You can just go over there and sort of be fully immersed in a different culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is, yeah, I feel like it's quite different from other travel in that respect. Absolutely. And finally, have you been reading, watching or listening to anything that you would like to recommend to our audience? Yeah, so I'm an avid consumer of podcasts, so I have lots, <laughs> I, have lots I can recommend, but I'll, I'll restrain myself and just offer a few. Perfect. So on the markets fronts, for anyone interested in markets and understanding markets issues, there's a great Bloomberg, Bloomberg podcast called Odd Lots, um, and they cover all sorts of interesting market topics, um, uh, which is great. If you're interested in investing more broadly or on sort of the mechanics around the asset management industry, um, I'd really recommend uh, Capital Allocators with Ted mm -hmm. Saides or Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. They're both great. Um, and then there's also a couple of academics, well, actually a lot of academics that do great podcasts. Um, they usually sort of take a lot of rigour and go into a lot of detail about topics which, which I like. Uh, so yeah. one is called Deep Background with Noah Feldman, who's a law professor at Harvard. Um, and then another is called Capital Isn't um, with Luigi Zangalis from University of Chicago. So he looks at, you know, what aspects of capitalism work and what don't. Um, mm. And with a focus on sort of very contemporary issues going on right now. And then finally, um, the last one, which is much more general, is called The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. He covers all sorts of topics, um, tends to interview people who are experts or leaders in their field um, with the view to try to, um, his catch cry is, master the best of what other people have learnt already or already figured out already, yeah. um, which I think is, is, you know, yeah, if you can learn from someone else's experience, then, then that's an easy way to, to get up the learning curve quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll love to hear a guest um, recommend some more podcasts. <laughs> Obviously, we're big fans here. Um, so I'll be definitely putting all of them on my list to listen to. Excellent. So, Carol, it's been a pleasure having you on um, and hearing your insights on some recent trends we've seen in the market. So thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bo Talks. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Banking on Women. Thank you, everyone. Bye.